The story is told of a rugged Mexican gaucho who raised cattle on an arid plateau. He lived a very difficult life. He worked hard, long hours, and he also had to deal with some very difficult situations in his life with people. But when the pressures of life threatened to overwhelm him, he had a little ritual which always helped. Late at night, he would take a long walk on the plateau until he stood as a lone figure on that vast stretch of earth, a tiny speck under the immense canopy of space. And he would look up at the stars, alone with his thoughts. He would stare upward at the brilliant array of stars and slowly the utter immensity of space before him would overwhelm him. And before long, his problems would all seem small once again. And then he would walk home in peace for another day. One reason I believe that God has stretched out the heavens over our heads, one reason that God has hung the stars in space, was that we might see with our own eyes how great He is and how small we are. The ancient psalmist, you remember, stared into the heavens and he was, to coin a phrase, blown away, wasn't he? What did he say? In words of exultant wonder, he exclaims to the Creator, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Do you feel in your bones what the psalmist is saying? So many in our day seem to spend their lives questioning why God does what He does. Why does He let people do this and do that? Or why does He not do this or not do that? Is it not a stunning wonder that God even considers us at all? Think about this for a few moments. We need to stop and look into the stars from our scientific perspective every once in a while. It always is helpful to me. If you could get on a commercial airline right now that had enough fuel to circle the earth, you could leave right about now and get back about 3 a.m. on Tuesday. That would take you nonstop around the globe. How fast would it take if you went the speed of light? You could go around that same globe that would take about 40 hours to fly in a commercial airliner around the globe. You could go around the globe 10 times in one second. Now you just try to circle your finger 10 times in one second. Just in the smallest possible way, 10 times in one second, you would go around the earth. And yet, from this planet, anywhere that you stood, if you went straight you would still be passing stars at the speed of light for 15 billion years. And that's just what we can see with telescopes. And when we've seen that far, 15 billion light years, there's no sign up there saying, End of story, no more stars. That's just as far as we can see. And many of those stars, many are thousands of times larger than our planet. What 
is man, that you are mindful of him. All of that space filled with stars. And here then is this great wonder. The God who created this expansive universe by simply speaking, He made it. We can't even possibly begin to travel it. And He made it by speaking. That same God cares about what goes on on this minuscule speck of dirt that is hanging in the immensity of space. He cares. This same God delights to act with intense interest and love toward His creatures. And that is exactly what we find Him doing in these early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Maybe that's happened to you if you've been able to fly someday over the ocean or you look over from an airplane and you see the immensity of this world and you say how small we are. But imagine how small God sees us. And yet he cares, and he moves, and he is intensely interested in this world, and he's intensely interested in the redemption story, and we are coming to the very crux of it, the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ. (coughs) It was time for the long-prophesied Messiah to come. The angel Gabriel is dispatched by God to visit an aged priest by the name of Zechariah. You remember he's offering incense there on the altar inside the holy place. And Gabriel stands and appears before him and says, Your wife is going to have a son. You will name him John. And he will be the one who walks officially before the Messiah and proclaims his name. Elizabeth's pregnancy was a miraculous work of God, a sign that God was, in fact, on the move. She was old. She was barren. Never had children. But she now is pregnant with John. (coughs) Gabriel also then is dispatched just a little further north to a young woman, perhaps 12 to 13 years of age, by the name of Mary, who lives in the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Chapter 1 and verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, as he appears to her. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary wonders at all of this. How is this to be? Verse 34, she said, Since I am a virgin, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Remember again, the Semitic idea of Son is one equal with. He will be God. And this unique conception Now the key to understanding Mary in all of this we find in verse 38 where she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. May it be to me as you have said. We see here in Mary this submissive response to the plan of God, to the design of God. In all of this vast universe, God reaches down to one young girl and he chooses her to bear God in flesh, the Messiah, whom God's people have anticipated now since the days of Adam and Eve in very rough form. 
There has been a sense of the coming of this Messiah. And through the ages and through the prophetic eras, there, have been, there has been more and more detail given as to who this Messiah will be, where he will be born, when he will come. Mary knows because of the words of Gabriel that she is the one who will bear this very son. So we have two prophecies, two announcements. John, who will be known as John the Baptist, and we have Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the Most High. At this point in the text, beginning at verse 39, the two worlds of these two intersect. The Holy Spirit has overshadowed Mary, we should assume, I believe, from verse 35, and Jesus is conceived in her womb. And now we notice in these next few verses, beginning at verse 39, that Mary visits Elizabeth. So the two, are, the two worlds are now going to come together. Remember that in that day they lived a long ways apart. Uh, in our time, it, there's really no way to even parallel it because we have air travel, but it would be about a three to four days journey apart. Their worlds were completely removed from one another. But they are related and they are now going to come together. Verse 39, at that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea or literally Judah, the territory of Judah, which is in Judea. But Gabriel told Mary that Elizabeth was going to be with child. Remember that? And perhaps there was an implicit command for Mary to visit Elizabeth. He says that in verse 36 of chapter 1. Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. So there's maybe an implicit command for Mary to visit Elizabeth. Perhaps Gabriel just told her to go there, and we just don't have that recorded. But for whatever reason, Mary is on a mission, and she's in a hurry. She hurriedly gathers what she needs. She heads south on this three- to four-day journey. This is no flighty young girl. She's very aware of what is happening. She's aware of the Old Testament prophecies. And she undoubtedly spends much of this travel time in deep thought. More on that in a few moments. But while she is journeying southward into Judea, uh, into the, toward the village where Elizabeth lives, let's shift now to that village and to the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now remember, Elizabeth is at this point six months pregnant. Zechariah is still deaf and dumb, disciplined by God for his unbelief. Zechariah cannot speak, he cannot hear, but Zechariah can write. And he has obviously communicated to his wife that Messiah is about to be born. He communicates to her this vision from the angel that he received, this message from the angel, that this Messiah is about to be born and our son is going to proclaim him and announce him to the world. But think about this. Zechariah and Elizabeth have no idea who this is going to be, who's going to bear this son. So there's Zechariah. He's out back pruning his grapes, so to speak, and... And Elizabeth is in the kitchen kneading her dough, and there's a knock on the door from this long-lost relative by the name of Mary. Verse 40. And Mary entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. So we see her there, in a sense, framed by the door, standing in their home, saying hello to Elizabeth, and probably a little bit more than just hello, but she speaks as would have been typical for them, this uh, greeting. And something very unusual happens. Verse 41, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. 
This is not a simple kick. This is not a shift or a turn. This is a direct (coughs) response of the baby to Mary's voice. Gabriel told Elizabeth in 115 that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even in the womb. That did not necessarily mean that John was regenerate. I, I suppose that is conceivable if God wanted to work that way. I don't think that's the case. We must distinguish between spirit-filling of spirit-baptized believers under the new covenant and spirit-filling prior to the formation of the church in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit had a ministry to people prior to Acts 2. And there is some sort of ministry that is going on here in Elizabeth's life as well as in John the Baptist's life as he is in the womb. But this is obviously, then, a work of the Holy Spirit in John's life as he leaps within the womb of his mother at the very sound of Mary's voice. Now, what picture do you get there? I don't think John is inside Elizabeth's womb with his ear up against her stomach saying, Hey, who, hey I know who that is. Hey, that's Mary's, it is Mary's voice, and he jumps up and, you know, sorry, Mom, and then goes back to sleep. I mean, it's... This isn't goofiness going on here, as if he's fully aware and knows his name and knows who he is. What's going on is that the Holy Spirit is working in John's life in a unique way, but we can say this, that there is, in fact, an emotional response on his part, isn't there? There, This is true, I think, true emotion that will be borne out. uh, His leap serves as an unmistakable sign to Elizabeth. Maybe it was something like her heart jumps with excitement, and just as it did, the child leaped forward in such a way that it was very clear that God was operating. This was a unique sign, and she catches that whole meaning. Verse 41, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. With loud voice, she announces, This dramatic filling of the Spirit again here, I believe. Verse 43, But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. She realizes it is a sign. Let's go back to verse 42 just briefly. We notice there, uh, Blessed are you among women. We understand this as the idea that you are the most blessed of all women. God reached down and chose this particular woman to enjoy the happy station of bearing the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And Elizabeth pronounces the first blessing upon this child. The idea of the original language is something like this. The fruit of your womb has been and is now in a state of divine blessing. And forever after, those who revere and honor this Son are blessed, and those who deny this Son are cursed. Blessed are you, and blessed is the child that is in your womb. John would put it later this way in more bold terms. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is an anti-Christ. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Blessed is this child, and blessed will be those who trust Him. Why am I so favored, she says, verse 43. We notice here Elizabeth's humility. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord, 
should come to me. Now, there is immense humility there that really misses us to a large degree within our context. Mary is 12 to 13 years of age, most likely. This is a culture that reveres age and wisdom and maturity. And here is this aged woman. Her husband is a priest. Her husband is a fulfilled priest, for that matter. That is, he has had the experience of offering incense on the altar in the holy place of the temple. And perhaps above all, Elizabeth was with child in her old age. God had clearly and uniquely blessed her. But like her son would do three decades later, Elizabeth humbly honored the superior position of Mary. There's no jealousy here. There's no inflated sense of self-worth. This is one believing woman rejoicing in the calling and election of God for another believing woman. One commentator says wisely in application, peace reigns among those who serve God as each understands his or her place in God's plan. We notice Elizabeth's great humility as she praises Mary and speaks of her own unfitness to stand in Mary's presence. But we notice also Elizabeth's worship. Did you notice what she said? The mother of whom? The mother of my Lord. Wow. She is calling the zygote in Mary's womb, my Lord. As soon, she says, as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped with joy. She attributes this emotion to the unborn child. Though yet in her womb, John was not a personless fetus, but rather responds in some way to the stimulus of Mary's voice. Now think, this blessing from Elizabeth, was this not great confirmation for Mary? Wow, all that she had gone through, how amazing this whole event had been in these whatever four to five days, assuming there how quickly she left, but probably left right away, journey perhaps three to four days, just a few days. What an amazing thing has taken place in her life. But here God brings this aged woman along, and with no holds barred, she announces to Mary that she is in fact going to be the mother of the Lord, the Messiah. What a blessing. For young Mary. Mary could never forget that Jesus was conceived miraculously, but she would also be able now to cling to this confirming experience in her visit with Elizabeth. Notice what Elizabeth adds concerning Mary, verse 45. And this is key now to understanding Mary once again. Verse 45 Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Elizabeth commends Mary's faith in God's nearly incredible promise. We see two observations. I'd like to make two observations here. First of all, we notice here the fellowship between these two women. Elizabeth confirms Mary's faith. She supports her in this daring mission to believe God in all of this. One commentator says these two were to become innocent co-conspirators, soul sisters in the divine plot to save the lost. This is a beautiful picture of the mutual edification of believers. We are always in this world in a battle together and need to support one another in the awesome ways of God in this world. 
We do not see them. Uh, this beautiful picture, mutual, mutual edification, does not present to us a picture of criticizing, but of upholding. Not of envying, but of honoring. Not of despising, but of supporting. Elizabeth stands next to Mary and lifts her up. We see fellowship. We see, secondly, faith. The distinguishing mark of believers who know God's blessing is that they believe God's word. Humble, submissive confidence in God's plan and promises is the path to true joy. Mary was blessed of God because she believed what God had said. That's that's Elizabeth's conclusion. Blessed are you, Mary, for you have believed what the Lord has said. I don't think Elizabeth's looking over her shoulder at deaf and dumb Zechariah and saying, there, take that. I don't think that's the case. I'm sure she's doing this very respectfully, but there's the guy who didn't believe God. We're now in his home, and here is Mary, this young woman who stands there having trusted what God said. This will happen. This is true. I am your servant. Do with me as you choose. So Mary's visit is seen, and then Mary's song at verse 46. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. The Latin translation of the first word in the Greek text here is magnificat, and this this, uh, song is often known by that name. It is the word exalts or magnifies, and so magnificat, the song of Mary, is a magnification of God in light of what is taking place. The song is so well written that critics commonly stand in line to tell us she could not have possibly written this. This is Luke's work. This is some later Christian's work who's imposing this upon the text and putting this in the mouth of Mary. She could never have written this. She's a young girl. There's no way. Well, this is one of those classic examples where we want to deny the Scripture and do so in part because we try to impose our culture on their culture. We have to remember that Mary's mind was saturated with Scripture, and this poem is saturated with Scripture. She is simply reflecting the way that she would have understood life and using the scriptural terminology that would have been invested in her at a very young age Secondly, Mary did not spend her travel time listening to CDs, talking on her cell phone, endangering others in her car, and painting her nails while she drove. She's got three to four days to get down to Judea, and you can know what she's thinking about. For centuries, these prophecies have been there that Messiah would come, and He's coming, and God has chosen me. Me! In this whole universe, this speck, He's chosen me to bear this child. She's thinking as she travels. She's meditating as she travels. She's thinking through the Scriptures. Is it any wonder that she's able, like the Jews often did as they walked toward Jerusalem, to compose a poem, to compose a song that just uses pieces of Scripture? As Pastor Pratt mentioned earlier here in the reading of 1 Samuel 2, this psalm very much reflects the psalm of Hannah, who bore Samuel in the plan of God. God working again uniquely in that situation to give this barren woman a son who would be used for the purposes of God. She draws very heavily from that passage and other Old Testament texts. 
we also sense as we seek to discern this psalm that there is the radical world view of the Beatitudes here. The Beatitudes, those statements of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek shall inherit the earth. And that whole teaching of Jesus that seems to turn the world upside down, right on its head. We see the seminal elements of that here. This is all Old Testament language, but there is the seed of the new world, the new age of Messiah in all that she says. Mary's song reflects the music of that messianic age. Let's take her psalm and we'll divide it in half, where I think in the first part, she focuses upon her own place in the blessing of God, and in the second half, she broadens to see the bigger scope of God's picture. Let's look at those two strains. If we would bear it, uh, print it out, or just, uh, lay it out this way, we might see it as two verses of a song. The first, looking at her own experience. First of all, verse 46, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary did not see herself as sinless, did she? She needed a Savior, and she rejoiced in the fact that she had one. Verse 48, My Savior has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. Mary was young. I want to focus there in verse 48 on that phrase, humble state. The humble condition. She sees herself as small. God is great and reaching down to her. Let's think about this. Who is Mary? Mary was young in the midst of a culture that revered age and maturity. Mary was poor in a world where wealth is power. Mary was a Jew in a land ruled by Roman legions and crooked governors. Mary was a woman in a male-oriented world. Simply put, Mary was weak, she was vulnerable, she was powerless. But Mary's song rejoices in the God who specializes in using the downtrodden and the weak to accomplish His grand purposes. This is our God. He does not choose many mighty. He He chooses, rather, the weak to confound the strong the poor to humble the rich, the insignificant to rule over the powerful in his time. When God chose a man to lead Israel out of Egypt, who did he choose? He had at his disposal a man who was a powerful military general, tradition tells us, a man who was directly connected to the court of Pharaoh, a young man with strength, with power, with authority, a young man whose chariot would go through the streets of Pharaoh's city and people would yell, make way, and as his chariot passed, people would bow. God had such a man at his disposal to use to take Egypt out of Israel, and God said, he's not ready. It wasn't until Moses was an insignificant, unknown shepherd for four decades that God said, now he's ready. 
He did not send Moses into Pharaoh's court to say, let my people go with a sword at his side. He walked into that court, the most powerful room on earth. He walked in there with a shepherd's staff. And God used that man to deliver Israel from Egypt. And when God chose a place and a time and a family to send His Son to redeem the world, He conceives that Son in the womb of a powerless peasant girl who birthed her newborn Lord of the universe in a stable. God loves that story. You read it over and over again. The poor are elevated. The humble are elevated. The weak are used. Jesus didn't come in a limousine, walk a red carpet. He didn't receive a parade and ride at the front to the adoration of the masses. Jesus came humbly, born of a peasant woman in a stable. (coughs) So Mary gets the point. She rejoices in her humiliation, in her humble state, For now on, she says, all generations will call me blessed. There's no boasting here. She's just referenced her humiliation. She is in a humble position. She is not deserving this. This is God's unique movement. And from now on, generations will call her blessed. There again, I see the specialization of God. He specializes at intervening in the affairs of the world so that nothing is ever the same again. When he steps in, he does things in the opposite way that we would think, and nothing is ever the same again. From now on, generations will call me blessed. She clearly understands the gravity of what is taking place. Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So Mary revels in the wonder of God's electing purposes and seeing clearly what God has done for her. She now lifts her eyes to see God's overarching purposes through time. Mary rejoices in God's election of her in what He has done to choose her without merit. Now she rejoices in God's broader saving purposes, beginning at verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. God's election of Mary was certainly unique, but here's the joy for us in this text. On the other hand, we can rejoice that extending mercy to the humble is one of God's primary trademarks. God's election of Mary is a microcosm of how God delights to work in history. So Mary turns now to look back to Israel's history and in a sense to look forward prophetically as she exalts in the revolutionary nature of God's ways. Verse 51, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in His inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. No one can stand against the purposes of God, Mary says. In the context, where is she coming from? Think of her context. Think of the Old Testament Scriptures. We think of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, a ruler whose throne is humbled. We think of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in the book of Daniel. We think of Haman in the court of Xerxes in the book of Esther. And on and on it goes. Proverbs 3, 34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
In Matthew 23 and verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In the end, death itself will not prevail against the power of God. He scatters the proud, Mary says. He uplifts the humble, destroying thrones and lifting up his insignificant people. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Here again is evidence of the upside-down ways of God. The poor are elevated, the rich are humbled. If for no other reason, and there are many others, that is one reason we see rampant wealth in our world, that through eternity we may understand that it is empty and it is meaningless, and that the humble and the poor will be elevated and exalted. The upside-down ways of God. But like the Beatitudes as we read her words, the hungry will be filled with good things, the rich will be made empty, we begin to realize that this is really the world turned right side up. It's just not a world that we see around us very much. Verse 54, He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. There's the mercy of God, choosing Abraham. Verse 55, to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. You see, Mary ties very clearly the prophetic word of Gabriel to the promises of God to Old Testament Israel. She is going back to the promise of God to Abraham. I will make you a great people. I will give you this land. There will come a son who will rule on the throne of David forever. Mary's tying all of this right back in. This is what God has been doing all along. This is what he's been doing when he chooses Abraham. This is what he's been doing when he chooses David and seats him on the throne of Israel. He's coming now in his grand scheme to the time when his Messiah will rule and will save. So Mary's appreciation of God's Grace is free of any sense of merit. Hers is a song of pure joy. God is moving. The merciful God is acting. So verse 56, she stays with Elizabeth for about three months, then returns home. It's not important to Luke to note if Mary left right after the birth of John or right before nor are we told if Joseph learned about Mary's condition before she left for Elizabeth's home or after she returned. Those are matters in the text that, we're not, uh, that are not explained to us. They are not important to Luke's purposes. But what is clear is that in the spirit of Psalm 8, Mary looks with wonder at the immense plan of God and she proclaims His mercy and His power and His holiness. And I I tell you, we need to think like Mary. We need to think the way she thinks in this psalm. And we need to respond in the way she responds to all that is happening to her. Mary could see God for who He really was. The God of the weak, the God of the poor, the God who exalts the downcast and the downtrodden and lifts them up to accomplish His purposes. And you know what the key in all of this is? Where's Zechariah? He's standing off in the corner, proverbially. I don't know, I have a clue where he was. But he's standing off in the corner. He's deaf and dumb. 
Now he's going to enter into the joy of all of this, but for the moment he's set on the shelf. You imagine, I, I would imagine that that man's lungs are about to burst with what's happening and the part that he has had in this whole endeavor. But there he is silenced. Nothing to say because of his doubt. Where is Mary because of her belief? There she is speaking a psalm, psalm of praise that has been recorded forever. Zechariah will get his turn, but for now, he's got to be silent. Mary's faith issues forward in joy. When God looked for a young woman who could handle this amazing commission, he chose a woman of faith. Verse 45, a woman who would believe him. Mary believed God's promise, and the result was that she sung his praises. And although the circumstances of our lives differ widely, God is in the same business with you and with me. There's a danger here as we look at a text like this and say, man, what an awesome experience for Mary. And walk away from it and leave it at that. We need to realize that the God who chose Mary and worked in her life is busy about the same thing in our lives in different ways. He loves to extend mercy to those who fear Him. He loves to extend mercy to those who revere Him. And one of the chief evidences of our fear of God is that we dare to believe His amazing promises and do not shrink from His call. And when we believe God's promises and step up to fulfill His mission, God is big to us, not small. Mary was a little girl with a great big vision of God. We naturally specialize in striving rather to be big people with a little God. Mary was a little girl with a big God. Faith and obedience magnify God and issue forth in rejoicing. Can you exalt in God today like Mary? Can you proclaim Him as the mighty God? Can you proclaim Him as the merciful God? Do you know her experience to some degree that he is a God who looks upon the weak and the poor and loves them and uses those who fear him? I hope you do not come this morning with a spirit that is grumpy or fearful or depressed or apathetic or confused. But if you do, let's do what that old gaucho did. And walk out alone and look up into the immensity of God's work. And let's bring our problems down to the size that they really are. And let's see God in all of his greatness and splendor as Mary did. And let's believe him. We who are weak and infertile and poor and downcast, we who do not matter in this world, May we look like Mary to this God of mercy and realize that we know the author of creation. We know the Lord of the universe. And He cares for us. Let's dare to believe Him that when He says all things work together for good to those who love me, it will be. And let's dare to believe Him when He says when we see Christ, we will become like Him. 1 John 3, let's dare to believe it. And when we see the great shepherd separating 
the sheep from the goats in Matthew 25. Let's know that that's our line. Enter you who are blessed of God into my kingdom. We too who know Jesus Christ as Savior have received mercy from this same God. He is working in our behalf to bring us to glory and to bring us joy. And if we get a picture of that immensity, if we look up into His face and understand His purposes, the result will be that we are filled with faith and confidence which issues forward in praise and joy. And that is why I do a lot of times a little cheerleading in here on Sunday mornings to try to awaken us to think about God so that we sing with joy, so that we exalt in His name, because we are the redeemed. And we will come with singing unto Zion. And we should see that singing and that joy in our life now as we come to know this great God who loves the poor and who loves and uses those who revere Him. So might we say, borrowing the words of one author, May we look to this God and say now in our own souls, O glorious love of Christ my Lord divine, that made him stoop to save a soul like mine. Through all my days, and then in heaven above, my song will silence never. I'll worship him forever. And praise Him for His glorious love. I hope that that's the mark of our daily lives. If you get yourself centered on you and your problems, you will become grumpy and discouraged and fearful and intimidated and confused. But if we lift our eyes and see this great God, we can be filled with wonder and joy and with song. May it be said of us, my song will never be silenced. I will praise him forever for his glorious love. Let's bow for prayer. We are thankful, our Father, for Mary. We honor her. We rejoice in her faith, in her obedience, in her confidence in you. We are thankful for Elizabeth and her faith, and even for Zechariah and his faith, and God, for the faith of your people through the ages that dared to trust your promises. God, may we, in a world of the wealthy and the powerful and the prominent, may we trust your word and consider very lightly power and prestige and control and wealth and all the things that this world elevates as all important. I pray, dear God, that you would allow us to rather pursue you with humble hearts that really trust your truth, that there is reward in heaven for the meek, for the peacemakers, for the poor in spirit, for the humble, for those that revere you in a world that doesn't. I pray, God, that we would live by faith, and Lord, that you will work now in the hearts of your people.
to move within us, to trust, to believe, to obey what you call us to do. Lord, if there is one that does not know you as Savior, that is among us, we pray, God, that you will show them the joy of Mary even today. Dawn upon their hearts and draw them to yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.